The killing took place at dawn, and as usual, it was a decapitation, accomplished by a single vicious swipe. Blood geysered into the air, creating a vivid slick that stood out in the water like the work of a violent abstract painter. 500 yards away, outside of a lighthouse on the island's highest peak, a man watched through a telescope. First, he noticed the frenzy of gulls, bird gestalt that signaled trouble, and then he saw the blood. Grabbing his radio, he turned and began to run. I'm Ben Marks, and this is GrottoPod. Today we have the second of two special podcasts about a new series of books called Lit Starts, which are available on September 10, 2019. Each book is filled with prompts to help writers practice the craft of writing character, dialogue, action, and humor. Each book also features a foreword by a grotto writer. Today we present two of those writers, Bonnie Tsui and Chris Collin discussing their approach to writing action and humor. Enjoy. I mean, I think one of the similarities between writing humor and writing action is unexpectedness, right? And that's all the specificity, like the words that are sort of like bumping up against each other in surprising ways or situations that are. And I think that's for me, like if I think about any rules, it's just that sort of an animating force, like that there's something that you just sort of like, it's a surprise a little bit. Yeah, I agree with that. But I'm I'm sort of hung up on this idea that like, there are no rules. I mean, unexpected things happen in Garfield. Like, <laughs> Odia will hit him with a pie or something out of nowhere, but that's not funny. Some people think that's funny. Well, I know some people think it's funny. Yeah. So I don't know what you do with that fact. Like some people think that you know, I don't know, Tim Allen is funny, but he's not funny. So what do you do with that? I don't know. I don't know what you're supposed to do as a uh, as a writer or like as someone who's trying to decide whether to be funny or not. I really think it's like an, it's a challenging and interesting mm-hmm. question because, mm-hmm. you know, it's like you can. It just depends. It depends. And some people think they're funny and they're not. And some people don't sort of present as funny people, but they are funny people. Do you think it just depends on what combination of people get together and whether or not they think each other's funny? No. <laughs> no, I think it only depends on whether I think they're funny uh, yeah, or not. Yeah. And that's the most important thing. Yeah. No, but then, but but I'm sort of half serious because I think that's it really just depends on what you're into. But isn't that sort of a rule about all writing? Well, this is where I sort of want to pivot to you and action. Mm-hmm. I think there, action you can more reliably apply a set of rules right. to. And if you, if you adhere to those rules, you will end up more reliably with... Mm-hmm a well-wrought scene. So the idea with action is that there's some propulsive force to the writing, right? Like a scene that moves. Again, it's not necessarily that there's, you know, car chases and guns and explosions, but that there is something that's moving you forward and pulling you into what's happening in in the story, right? Right. So I agree with you on that. Action is something that it's not necessarily the car chases and the big motions and big sounds uh, that you think of when you think of, say, an action movie. It's it's that in writing that it is some some propulsive energy that is in the writing itself that moves you along to the next thing. Like, so in a scene, it can be quiet. It can be quiet action, but it's something that kind of pulls you in close and you want to see what happens next. And I think that there are lots of moments where you can be in 
very mundane scenes in a book, but there's something about the way that the the sentences are organized that basically pull you along with it in this tide. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about quiet action. Like mm-hmm. I've been foisting Annie Dillard on you for a million years, yes, Bonnie. Yes, true. And she's someone who very much sucks you into a scene, mm-hmm. and that scene can be one of appreciating a certain kind of flower. Right. So, so yeah, as, as America's reigning action expert, how would you <laughs> describe what she's doing? I think for her, it's, uh, it's pulling you into a moment. So, so much of her writing is out observing life out, outdoors, right? So she'll be taking a walk, something is just very simple and, and really not full of action, uh, sort of uh, as we've been like talking about that people sort of classically think of action. She'll be taking a walk and she'll be observing a bird or a flower or something rotting in the path. This is what I mean when I say unexpected. You know that when you take a walk in the wilderness, you might come across something, you know, a dead thing, a dead bird or squirrel or whatever. There is the quiet action of maybe there's like maggots in the fur or, or there's something that's happening. You like you're noticing the sound or the vividness of this image and there's something about that that moves and so it pulls you in and so there's something propulsive about that unexpected juxtaposition I think. Yeah that makes sense. I mean I I always feel like unexpected is such an important part of good writing in Mm -hmm. general. Right. The first thing you have to do in order to write a good piece is to sort of break up with the part of yourself that thought it knew what the good piece was going to be because we all Mm -hmm. have these sort of received ideas Mm -hmm. about what good writing is and I think the fact that we have received that idea means it's tired, it's played right. out. Try something new. Yeah. Like we have these sort of archetypes of what a story is. Mm-hmm. And sometimes those are useful, for sure. Things should have a beginning, middle, and end, and all mm-hmm. that. But I think when we realize that we are working within a familiar uh, mode, mm-hmm. and you know we think the story is going to have this sort of awesome payoff by doing this thing that we've seen in movies before... That's usually a signal that actually you should turn left. You should pivot to something something else. I like the idea of talking about odd pairings and why... why, I guess we... I don't know if we can talk about why it's funny because to your previous point that it's... There's something that... There aren't rules, but I do think that odd pairings create... What is it? How do you pronounce that word? Frisson? (laughs) Is that what that... Is that how you pronounce it? I never took French. That there's some kind of like weird, thank you so much. There's like a weird energy in that contrast that there's something that's interesting, right? So, like a duck with sunglasses on? uh, Not so much. Mm. Do you think that's funny? No, I don't. (laughs) I think about why my kids think that the word butt is funny or Bob, you know, there's just the, the name is funny. And one of the exercises in the book, it has to do with like the words that you think are funny. Now, the words that you think are funny are not the same as the words that my children think are funny. But why do they think that? What They just enjoy saying them, and there's, some, there's something like novel about it. It doesn't sound like other words. And so they'll just say bob and butt to each other and giggle. Like, what? You, 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 we're talking about something a little more sophisticated than ch- uh, childish um, butt humor, but why are some words funny? I don't know, man. I mean, they just are. I agree. Like, yeah. I think it's like... Uh... I don't know. It's it's almost sort of where writing and music intersect mm-hmm. or something, probably. Mm-hmm. It's just sort of fun to say them in your mouth. It just sort of reminds me of this thing that my friend Rob Bedecker says. He's a, he's a much more seasoned humor writer than I am. And he, 
when we were writing that book, what to talk about, we'd be sort of on a roll with something funny, and I would sort of try to cram in like three more funny things Mm -hmm. into that scene or into that section or whatever. And he said, don't stack the whack. And I always thought that was such a good writing lesson and life lesson, probably. Just, you know, have restraint. So I suppose that applies to Bob and Butt words. Just, I mean, use them sparingly. Use them sparingly. <laughs> well, I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about this William Finnegan book, Barbarian Days. You know, this this book is a surfing memoir of his, and he certainly writes a shit ton about surfing itself. But one of the things that I wanted to point out was in the beginning of the book, he writes about moving to Hawaii and having the rite of passage at school is to get beat up and to get beat up by a succession of boys named Freitas. And he's not really sure if they're all related, but they seem to be, and they're all different sizes. And But there is something funny about, I think, about how he describes the action of the fistfights. I'm going to read a little bit of it to you because you think about fistfights as being very, um, there's a lot of classic action verbs, but he describes it as more of this sort of like mundane orientation. Right, So his orientation program at school included a series of fistfights, some of them formally scheduled. And so he would often find himself facing off there with a number of these kids. And he said, the Freitas clan's method for training its members in battle, it seemed, was to find some fool without allies or the brains to avoid a challenge and then send their youngest fighter without any chance at all into the ring. If he lost, the next biggest Freitas would be sent in. This went on until the non-kinsman was defeated. It was all quite dispassionate. The bouts arranged and refereed by older Freitas's and more or less fairly conducted. So it's dutiful, right? You don't think of fistfights or getting beat up by bullies at school as, as so dispassionate. But I find something like really tragic but also kind of funny about the mundaneness of that action. And, and, and then later on he talks about how at the end of the fights... Team Freitas departed. I remember watching them jog, laughing and loose, a happy family militia, up the long slope of the graveyard. They were evidently late for another appointment. (laughs) So it just kind of goes on from there. It's just this troop of boys going around beating people up. But there's no fuss about it. And I just find that there's like a a, a great kind of humor in the way he presents that action. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. I was sort of struck by all the little... Uh, visual details he throws in just to make sure that you're really picturing it and Uh and he doesn't sort of lapse too much into 30,000 foot right sort of summary he's you're really right up in there in that scene and you can you can feel it slow down and you can imagine being there vivid it's vivid yeah I feel like we're getting a little abstract and let's talk about writing and I thought it'd be fun to actually solve a writing problem okay I've got one bring it so I just was uh, in Austria a couple weeks ago on assignment for a travel story. I was hiking in the in the Austrian Alps, and I sort of got in over my head. It turned out to be a, a more intense and dangerous four or five days than I was expecting. The bad part was almost dying, but the good part was, okay, well, this is actually sort of a good story. There's actually some vivid, high-stakes action, mm-hmm. which is the kind of thing that doesn't come down the pike all that often. So you're sort of glad when it happens. Assuming you make it off the mountain, okay. So I sat down, I came home, and I sat down, I started trying to write this thing, and it just wasn't as scary on the page as it was in real life. So, Bonnie. Yes, Chris? What do I do to solve that problem? What what did you find tricky? What I found tricky was pacing. You you can't sort of live in that high-stakes 
right. situation for the duration of a 3,000-word story. Yeah. I think the juxtaposition of closely observed detail mm-hmm. of particular moments on that hike and then having it speed up, mm-hmm. right? So it is like an action movie in that in that respect where you have moments where you're it, they're rendered in exquisite detail because you're just most vivid to you and it's imprinted in your brain. And then you have to you have to keep the action going, right, for the reader. As a reader, it's not going to be your lived experience. It's going to be, okay, what do I want to say about it? So it's taking you through the vividness of the moment so that... Meaning, like, I look down and I put my left foot on this small six-inch ledge. I mean, like, how, how, how granular do we get here with the details? You can get very granular. But then... How do you know how, much, how granular to get without losing people in the boringness of those details? <laughs> I think you just have to try with, experiment with zeroing in on different parts of that scene. And, and I think you have to then have some sense of where you want to take it, right? So where do you want to land in that particular passage? Like, what moment are you trying to describe right now? When you thought one of your friends was going to disappear into the ether? That's right. I, there was a moment when I was going down this really steep mountain pass at about 2,200 meters, mm-hmm. looking down into this abyss with my friends, and I really thought I was going to watch them die, or they are going to watch me die, or something. I think I was able to describe that mm-hmm. vividly, but then I had to sort of pull out mm-hmm. and make something of it right. without seeming like I was teaching a, some kind of lesson. Right. Yeah, I don't know. It's a we- I think it's a weird kind of writing because once you sort of introduce that level mm-hmm. of action, suddenly you're a little bit in an action movie. You are in a, an action movie, but then you take the there's a suspension. I think then you can actually get out of that moment and live in your head a little bit. So are you? What are you doing in that head moment mm-hmm. where you are? Everything is very clarified, right? When we 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 encounter moments like that, are you like transmitting messages into the ether? Are you? praying to your god are you mm-hmm. hoping for something yeah that's i think i think that's actually it i think i think that was sort of the most challenging thing and i think a lot of writers i've spoken with uh-huh. have a similar challenge like often it's our thoughts that we need to convey in a compelling way mm-hmm. because the thoughts are how we sort of arrive move from a to b in, right. in some in some manner and you can couch those thoughts in the scene so that it all runs together. And of course, because you're pulling it out, I mean, we're, I think we're talking pretty specifically about craft in this way because we're, we're kind of constructing how a scene could go. Mm-hmm. But it is how you, we're really breaking it down. We're actually figuring out where each of those pieces can go so that when you read through it, it reads as this is what happened. It's a faithful representation of what happened, even though it's actually completely, it's like you've lifted out, you've cut out little slices of action and then uh, now you're in this perspective of your brain and then you're back into what the sensory experience of what that was yeah, it's interesting I think it, it's fascinating to kind of think about how to create it how to construct it I guess I was going to try and find something a funny person had written mm-hmm. and read it aloud to this podcast while you're doing that I'm going to read um, vividly active passage that I like yeah please well this this passage I'm going to read actually is a little bit more representative of what we think of when we think of action and I, I it's the opening paragraph to Susan Casey's book The Devil's Teeth and I really think it's one of the best openers I've ever read the killing took place at dawn and as usual it was a decapitation accomplished by a single vicious swipe blood geysered into the air creating a vivid slick that stood out in the water like the work of a violent abstract painter 500 yards away, outside of a lighthouse on the island's highest peak, 
a man watched through a telescope. First he noticed the frenzy of gulls, bird gestalt that signaled trouble, and then he saw the blood. Grabbing his radio, he turned and began to run. I just love that paragraph. I just think that it's, there's a little bit of mystery. There's a little bit of like, who got murdered? Or like, what's happening? And then you realize later on that it's a shark killing an elephant seal. Oh, uh-huh. Who's watching through the telescope. Uh That's the, you know, shark scientist on the island in the Fairlands. And I like that we don't know. It it ends on just a little bit of a cliffhanger. Like, where is he running? To or from? I just think it's such a great example of how you can pull in a reader with a, a vivid scene, a bit of action, and then and then pull back and say, you know, there's like you you can explain what's going on a little bit. You can talk about why you're there, and then you're just back in it. Uh huh. Yeah. All right. I trade you that opening for this opening. I mean, I trade you this opening for that opening. <laughs> this is sort of another way of getting into a piece that I think is just as successful and great, but totally different. One of my favorite journalists, one of, I think, like, everyone's favorite journalists these days is Taffy Brodesser Ackner. Love it. She does this thing that I am very grateful for, which is she makes her her actual journalism funny. Like, mm-hmm. straight, it's totally straight-up, legit journalism. It's not like she's a humor writer, but she finds a way to do serious, substantive stories funnily. Funnel, funnily. She had this assignment uh, a while back for GQ to write about sugar daddies. And that is obviously like a, an interesting topic. I mean, who's not interested in sugar daddies? But it's a phenomenon. And that can be challenging to write about a phenomenon, interestingly. It's, it doesn't necessarily lend itself right off the bat to a vivid bit of action like you just read. Mm-hmm. So I love the way that she starts. I'm going to read it right now. Thurston Von Moneybags, not his real name, was scammed once by a girl in Houston. He had arranged to meet her so that he might size her up and determine whether he wanted to give her a monthly stipend in exchange for regular sex and sometimes maybe dinner. In other words, was there chemistry? Was she blonde and blue-eyed the way he liked them? Was she thin but not anorexic? A shapely body, you know. Could he talk to her? That was very important. It was a little important. It wasn't that important. I don't know why I like that so much, except that it's just, I'm hooked. I want to know what happens next. It almost starts like like a fable Mm -hmm. where you just have this sort of vaguely absurd scenario and the stakes are clear and the desire is clear and we already know this is an interesting ridiculous person we're talking about it's a different kind of action i think that pulls us in and humor wise a person could write a very serious sort of newspapery story about the phenomenon of sugar daddies and to not be funny about it seems like missing a great opportunity right well i think a lot of writers um, a lot of journalists specifically are afraid to insert themselves or insert their opinions into the actual piece uh, on uh, on the subject matter or on the and what's great about Taffy is that she she's not afraid to do that and she's kind of she's saying well I mean it's let's be let's be real it wasn't that important you know and and there's something about the way she says it that is funny because it's it's the contrast between what he might say and what we all know to be true right and and it like loses something in this explication of we're trying to break it down a little bit where she's able to wink at us from uh, from her perspective. Yeah, yeah. What are you working on now, Bonnie? What am I working on now? I am. I have just recently returned from the Faroe Islands. And for those of you who don't know where the Faroe Islands are, because I didn't know before I went there, it is in the middle of the North Atlantic. It is an archipelago between Scotland, Norway, and Iceland. 
and yet, strangely enough, is under the jurisdiction of the Kingdom of Denmark, which is not really close to it. <laughs> but I wrote about migration, marriage migration, to the islands there. It'll be appearing in the New York Times this weekend. Do you think that Trump has a shot at buying that archipelago, now that Greenland's not working out? I think that the people of the Faroe Islands would also rebuff his advances. They're a kind, they're a kind and, and, and friendly folk. <laughs> what opportunities for, for action were there in that story that you wrote? There were lots of sheep mm-hmm. who move very slowly and then sometimes suddenly, mm-hmm. of very, very many different patterns and colors. Uh-huh. I'm on the edge of my seat. Um, you know, I actually encountered quite a few cliffs, like the ones you described in Austria, that were terrifying, and you would just walk on these little paths. They don't really police that much. Fjords, the edge of fjords, or steep-edged cliffs. Turns out Americans are much more... Sorry, the American government? I don't know. Culture? (laughs) Don't, don't like us to get too close to things. I have a lot of signs. <laughs> and in Faroe Islands, there's not a lot of signs. And in Austria, I doubt that there are either. No, they don't tell you Octone. They just they understand that you're a grown-up. Like in Yellowstone, for example, they have signs with people, their drawings of people standing on the geysers and the geysers exploding. And they're like, don't do that. Yeah. And um, I don't think anyone would make mistakes like that in, say, Austria or the Faroe Islands because you would just be dead. Yeah. How's that for action? Hmm. <laughs> Poor. Well, that's our show for today. Grottopod is concocted at the Writer's Grotto in San Francisco, and it's produced by Susie Gerhard, Daniel Pierce, Beth Weingarner, and George Higgins. Music is by Sugartown. Please review and subscribe to Grottopod wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ben Marks. Thanks for listening. <laughs>